0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.
1: You're on 3CR, and a big thank you to Black Noise Radio for their show today. Welcome to Listening Notes, a show about politics and activism and conversations about the issues affecting our lives. I'm Judith Peppard. And I'll be taking you through for the next half hour. And as always, I begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri and Bungarong people of the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, and recognizes their unceded sovereignty. Now, I'm wondering if you've ever visited Japan, and if you did, you might have gone to the Peace Park in Hiroshima, established to honour the people who died and to remind the world that nuclear weapons should never be used again. August sixth marks 75 years since the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Today I'll be speaking with Jem Rommeld, Australian Director of ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons.
2: These days, our primary goal is to see the success of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which was negotiated at the UN in 2017.
1: Jem Rommeld from ICANN. And that's coming up later in the show. But first of all, I'm speaking with Chris Cunane about a campaign to raise the age of criminal responsibility in Australia from 10 to 14 years of age. In 2019, the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child recommended 14 years as the minimum age of criminal responsibility. Aboriginal organisations, youth advocates, doctors, lawyers, all have been encouraging the Council of Attorneys General to raise the age of criminal responsibility. But at a meeting held last Monday, they failed to act. Chris Conane is a professor in criminology at Jombuna Institute for Indigenous Education and Research at the University of Technology, Sydney. His areas of research include Indigenous peoples and the law, juvenile justice, restorative justice and human rights. I began by asking Chris how he became interested in the area of juvenile justice because I'd been reading his papers on that for many years.
3: I used to work in the uh, youth sector. I used to work with homeless children uh, in Western Sydney. It was uh, through community work rather than academic work that I became interested in it.
1: So can you tell me when the current age of criminal responsibility was established?
3: The current age was set beginning in Queensland in mid-1970s. Because youth justice is a state and territory responsibility, it has varied across the states and territories. So Queensland set the age at 10 in the mid 1970s. New South Wales was the next state after that. And gradually the other states and territories changed their age as well.
1: And all of them went for the age of 10.
3: Yeah. So over the last 20 or so years, we've had a standard age of 10 across everywhere in Australia.
1: When I first heard that the age of criminal responsibility was 10 years old, I thought we were going to go back to the 1800s. I thought it would be some British law.
3: It was seven under the common law. It was seven in Australia until the beginning of last century. New South Wales, I think, was the first state to raise it from seven to eight in the 1930s, and then in the 1970s it was raised to ten.
1: So that, in fact, was an improvement over what existed before?
3: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. At the time of colonisation it was seven, and we know from the records that it was often well, I don't know if it was often ignored, but it was ignored. And we know that children at the age of five were transported to Australia. And in fact, some children under the age of seven were executed in Australia. So even though the common law at that stage was seven, even that wasn't always adhered to. So we have moved, but, you know, it's been pretty slow.
1: Chris, given your background working with young people and also your research, what does this look like on the ground in the community that the age of criminal responsibility is 10
3: the biggest problem is really that we're bringing in children that are age 10, 11, 12, 13 into the youth justice system, and not thinking about alternative ways of responding to behaviour or to needs that may exist there.
1: The very narrow and punitive approach.
3: Well, it is, and it's really out of step with what's happening in other countries, particularly in European jurisdictions. The average age across Europe is 14. You know, there are several states in Europe that have 15 or higher as the minimum age. The UN. Can Committee on the Rights of the Child has recommended 14. And Australia has really been criticised by the UN now for more than two decades because of its low
1: minimum age. There
3: is a real need to change just to do something about it. There is a groundswell of support across a broad range of organisations to bring about change.
1: You said earlier that this is a state-based issue. I'm just wondering where the responsibility falls for this change. Does it fall to the states? Does it fall to the federal government for leadership?
3: It's preferable to have a common age across the country. It's not difficult to imagine the problems that you have when you've got one age in New South Wales and one age in Victoria, for example but we have had that. It's actually been quite common over the last century, but it's preferable to have a common approach. And that's why the Council of Attorneys General had picked up on this issue to look at a common approach. It doesn't require federal leadership, but obviously if there's federal leadership, it greatly assists the situation. The downside of a common approach though, is that inevitably you're held ransom to the most conservative state to get change. So that can be a problem. It's preferable to have the same age across all of Australia. It's just demonstrably a better thing to be doing. At the moment, I think we're still hoping that there will be a common age, that all the states and territories will agree to that. However, if they can't agree, then there is absolutely nothing stopping any one of the states or territories to make this move. We've seen the Northern Territory Government committed to implementing the recommendations from the Northern Territory Royal Commission that reported in 2017, that recommended to raise the age in the Northern Territory. That was the Royal Commission that investigated the Don Dale detention Centre. We've been involved in the campaign now for several years, and we had meetings with the ACT Government. I think there is support there. The problem is getting one state or one territory to move we can get one to move, then others will gradually follow. Part of the problem has been that the federal government has not been particularly supportive. Christian Porter, as Attorney General, has publicly stated that he is quite happy with the system the way it is. I think we do need a much clearer statement of support from the federal government, otherwise it may languish with nothing done for a number of years.
1: How many young people are we talking about uh, uh, between 10 and 14 who might be in this situation?
3: Over the period of a year, We have just under 600 children under the age of 14, between 10 and 14, that are placed in youth detention. And we have about 700 children who are placed on some sort of court order, supervision order, yeah, a little under over over a 12-month period. And then separate from that, again, we have several thousand young people under the age of 14 who go to the youth court or children's court uh, over a 12-month period. So it affects a large number of young people.
1: What are the backgrounds of the young people? Are some more affected than others, some groups?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know that of those that go through the injured detention and of those that are placed on orders, uh, 65% of those children will be Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. So it's about 28% of the Adult prison population is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, where we're talking about, you know, in the under 14-year-olds, 65% of that group are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. So it's actually much worse than it is for adults, which needs to be thought about in terms of the long-term implications, effects of that on children.
1: So what are some of the better options for meeting the needs of young people that are being looked at?
3: There's a a range of alternative approaches. Yeah, for minor offending, it might be something like a restorative justice meeting between the victim and the offender. There may be need for family support. If the child is unable to go back to the family, then there may be a need for other forms of support, depending on whether there's psychological issues or mental health issues. The support that might be needed in that area. So it depends a lot on the specific nature of the young person. I think what's important to recognise is that we know that the youth justice system or the the criminal justice system, is dramatically unsuccessful. It's not as if we can say, well, look, we don't have a problem, we're doing things really well, why do you want to change it? I mean, it's quite clear that what's happening at the moment doesn't work well. We know that the younger the age of a child coming into youth justice, the more likely they'll stay in the system and progress on to the adult criminal justice system. So we need to do things better.
1: Yeah, and clearly from what you're saying, these are complicated, complex issues that need more thinking through, more sensitivity to families and children. Who are some of the people and groups supporting the change?
3: It's a broad range. There's Aboriginal organisations within the Change the Record umbrella group. Amnesty International has been highly active in helping organise the campaign. Professional groups, in particular the Royal Australian College of Physicians and the peak legal body, the Law Council of Australia, has been very active as well. I and mean, there's a broad range of support among non-government organisations, community-based organisations and professional bodies.
1: And if you've just joined us, I'm speaking with Chris Cunane from the University of Technology Sydney about the campaign to raise the age of criminal responsibility in Australia from 10 to 14 years of age. And given the strong evidence to support raising the age, I asked Chris, who opposed it?
3: I think there's a lethargy in terms of politicians and a reluctance to look at progressive change around criminal justice issues. I mean, it's much easier to reduce everything to a problem of law and order and the need for a punitive approach. And quite honestly, a willingness by politicians to completely ignore the information that we have around the need for change. The only other group, really, that has been opposed to a change has been the police. And I think they see it as a reduction in their powers. They want to be able to arrest and charge 10-year-olds if they see fit. But I'd suggest it is is probably open to change because there are plenty of police around who don't particularly relish the thought of dragging 10-year-olds into the justice system.
1: So it would be some groups of police, but not all police, from what you're
3: saying. Yeah. I mean, police associations have been opposed to any change. But interestingly, the vast majority of professionals that work with young people, are lawyers or magistrates, people who run detention centres, who work in detention centres, all see the need for a change. I mean, we've, part of the research that I've done is involved interviewing detention centre managers. We were working in detention centres and I've quite honestly never met anyone who supports the benefits of, of locking up a 10-year-old in detention.
1: In your paper, you referred to an important meeting. You said it was the historic opportunity to change the way we treat, and i quote, vulnerable and marginalised children. What happened at that meeting?
3: Well, the communique that was put out has about three lines on it, uh, three sentences, and basically it says that the um, Council of Attorneys General deferred any decision and put it off to a meeting next year while they consider what changes might be required if the law is changed and 10 to 13-year-olds inclusive uh, are no longer brought into the justice system. So basically they deferred making a decision, but Certainly didn't close the door on it.
1: Okay. So are you hopeful?
3: Oh, look, I think the change will come. It may not come this year or next year, but it will happen. There's enough momentum there in terms of the international experience. I mean, some of the Scandinavian countries raised the age in the late 1800s to 14, and, and we haven't seen the collapse of the social order in Scandinavian countries or northern Europe. Far from it. There's plenty of positive experience about how this situation can be dealt with better. We do have a few politicians that are at best lethargic, or perhaps themselves belong to the 1880s uh, rather than the 2020s.
1: And that leads to my next question: If it is the case that politicians are lethargic, or some at least, is it something that people listening can do to to kind of shift that a bit? Oh, look, I
3: think just to be involved in contacting politicians and supporting the change, and particularly in—I mean, it's a difficult situation in, in Victoria at the moment, given around COVID nineteen, but. I would see Victoria as one of the states that could lead the way on this. If we can't get national agreement, then I would see states like Victoria, probably Queensland and the ACT, possibly the Northern Territory, as being states and territories that could actually lead, lead the way.
1: So that's a call out to Victoria to ramp up the pressure on our governments and our MPs. Chris Cunane from Jumbunna Institute for Indigenous Education and Research at the University of Technology, Sydney.
3: They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Maraban. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Altaroa, and all around our increasingly warm little globe Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters.
1: Now, an important message from the Victorian government. If you get tested for coronavirus, COVID-19, you need to stay home while you wait for your results. If you don't have any leave available from your workplace, the Victorian government is providing a $300 payment. For more information, call the coronavirus COVID-19 hotline one 675 398 A 3CR supporter.
0: Hi. These are weird days. Many of my days are weird days, actually, but these are weirder than most. It can be a bit of a seismic shock to wake to the news of daily tolls here and in other countries, to spend week after week separated from friends and family, hour on hour, of many of us just within our own homes. But through all of this, we are also seeing so much to inspire hope. People are creating incredible networks of mutual aid, Gardens are thriving from all that lockdown attention. We are finding new ways to slow, connect and reflect. Artists are creating, kids are learning differently and activists are imagining and collaborating on new futures beyond this time. And 3CR is continuing to broadcast throughout this coronavirus remotely. Who knows how long this will have us all locked down but don't let it get you down. Tune in and love up your community. Stay connected. Work for what has to be a better future ahead. Thanks, CR, for staying steady on the waves.
1: And that was Dimity Hawkins, encouraging us to keep campaigning. And I can't think of a better person to do that, because Dimity was one of the founders of the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, which began right here in Melbourne. And we're going to hear about that next. This week marks 75 years since the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima in Japan. The day was August the 6th, 1945, and as I'm sure most of you know, on August the 9th, another nuclear bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. Since then, nuclear testing has occurred in Australia at Maralinga and in the Pacific with devastating effects for Aboriginal peoples in Australia, in the Pacific, and in other places as well. The last test in the Pacific was conducted by France as recently as 1996. And all that time, there have been international movements to abolish nuclear weapons, Jem Romold is the Australian director of ICANN.
2: ICANN is the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, which was founded actually in Melbourne in 2007 by doctors and activists and people who were pretty concerned about the state of the world and of the nuclear weapons states, clearly not abiding by their obligations to disarm. So they decided it was time for a new grassroots campaign to try to spur action on this issue. Now it is made up of more than 500 partner organisations in more than 100 countries. And these days, our primary goal is to see the success of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which was negotiated at the UN in 2017 and is progressing towards entry into
1: force. ICANN won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017, in part for its work for bringing about that treaty. But the Australian government hasn't acknowledged this achievement. I mean, it's not as if you were quiet about it.
2: In fact, we were very loud about it because we were so thrilled, obviously, to be awarded this honour for the work of our campaign, but also the work of of nuclear survivors and the hibakusha to see this campaign get to this point after 10 years uh, seeing a a nuclear ban treaty negotiated at the UN, which, you know, many countries and many people were very sceptical about and said that we would never see that happen. So we were thrilled about it. We were shouting to the rooftops. And actually, the the government at the time, they declined to congratulate us, even though this was the first Nobel Peace Prize to be awarded to an Australian originating organisation. They didn't want to draw too much attention to it because the government is very uncomfortable with our campaign. They know that we were awarded the prize for bringing about the treaty in large part, and, and they would like to avoid discussing that treaty because they don't want to join it. So can you give me some
1: background about the treaty itself?
2: The Treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, it's more commonly known as the Nuclear Weapon Ban Treaty, builds upon uh, pre-existing nuclear arms control agreements and it works alongside them so it doesn't clash with them but it also then goes further. So until 2017 there was not a treaty to clearly outlaw nuclear weapons and we've seen with the other weapons of mass destruction and other inhumane, indiscriminate weapons uh, like landmines and cluster munitions, a prohibition treaty is really important reduce that, and that really changes how people think about the weapon itself. So this was uh, something that was missing in nuclear
1: weapons. So there is actually a precedent for banning particular kinds of weapons that are seen as inhumane. Already the there are international agreements on that, and so your treaty is uh, following on from that tradition.
2: There are already prohibition treaties for chemical weapons, biological weapons, landmines and cluster munitions. While, of course, the Prohibition Treaty doesn't eliminate the weapon itself, it does result in a really significant shift in how the world thinks about the weapon. It makes it more illegitimate. The Prohibition Treaty has catalyzed a, a dramatic decline in countries that will say that they rely on that weapon and also it can impact the flow of funding to the industries that produce them. So we could see that there was a gap in international law, and there was no such treaty to clearly ban nuclear weapons until 2017. And this was at the end of a, a series of uh, conferences examining the humanitarian impacts, at which about 140 countries got together. And after three of these conferences,
1: they could see that they clearly needed to take action. It's something that has been researched from what you're saying, that many countries have been involved in looking at the implications. So it would have gathered a groundswell of the process you went through.
2: Absolutely. This was a process that involved the majority of the world's governments. Um, and it also took a, quite a lot of uh, risk on the, on the part of countries that usually would not be considered to have a voice on this issue. Uh, we've seen over the years the debate around nuclear weapons definitely dominated by the nuclear armed states. But through this process, the rest of the world decided that actually their, their voice on this is, is just as important. The effects of these weapons don't stop at national borders. Therefore, all countries have a stake in this issue. While they couldn't disarm weapons that they don't have, what they could do is come together and create a prohibition treaty, knowing that that would have a significant impact on the nuclear armed states
1: over time. There's a difference between states signing onto it and then states ratifying it. What kind of progress has been made?
2: The treaty was open for signature on the 20th of September in 2017. We've now reached 82 signatories. It tends to be a two-step process where a country will sign, um, which is where they indicate that they intend to ratify and then they ratify once they have gone through the process of making sure that their domestic legislation is compliant with the treaty. For the treaty to enter into legal force and become permanent international law, it, it needs to reach 50 ratifications. We're well on the way, and we'll get there after just 10 more ratifications. We expect to reach that point within the next year, and that means that all of the countries that have ratified will be legally bound. We're expecting, um, actually, on on Hiroshima Day the 75th anniversary of the uh, nuclear attack on Hiroshima, there may be some more signatures and ratifications to come in. And so we look forward to seeing the treaty grow and inevitably enter into force.
1: Jem Rommelt, Australian Director of ICANN. And it's great to see the positive response to the treaty, but disappointing that Australia is not among the states signing up, especially right now.
2: It is a really crucial time for this issue. We've seen so many agreements being undermined, particularly by the U.S., including the Iran deal, the intermediate range nuclear forces treaty. Uh, now we see the Open Skies treaty under threat, the New START treaty, and the US has even been talking about resuming nuclear testing. In Australia, we actually have a really powerful opportunity, which is to make sure that our country that's part of the
1: solution instead of being part of the problem. So not only did the federal government not really acknowledge the achievement of can receiving the Nobel Peace Prize, but they have also... Not signed up to this international treaty.
2: That's right. It's possible to join the treaty and remain within the US alliance and even stay as a military partner but one that does not include cooperation on nuclear weapons I mean the good news is also that there is a shift underway and support and awareness is growing around Australia and at all levels of government in federal parliament in councils and in the community so our activities to to mark and to commemorate the 75th anniversaries of the nuclear attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki will be taking place around the country mostly online due to the covid COVID-19 pandemic. And we have a, a page called For the Habakkusha.
1: Can you tell us about who the Hibakacha are?
2: The hibakusha are the atomic bomb survivors from Japan. Activities that we're organising and that others are organising are dedicated to honour them, to honour their memory, to honour the victims as well, to take action, to realise their vision for the elimination of nuclear weapons.
1: But, Gem, tell me about what you
2: plan. The events are listed on the website and one is an interfaith service. This is open to anyone um, and then this will be on the 6th of August at 6 to 6:45 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. And it will be held by Zoom. It will be co-hosted by ICANN and the Uniting Church, and we'll be hearing prayers from the Hindu Council of Australia, the Baha'i community, the Catholic Archdiocese of Sydney, the Buddhist Council, and other faiths and the Pacific Conference of Churches as well, who have been a significant campaigner for nuclear disarmament in the Pacific. That's one of the highlights. Next, there are film screenings and webinars, and there are even actually a couple of in-person gatherings in Hobart and Brisbane. So, yeah, I'd encourage people to, to head to the website to see what is happening and what they
1: can join. Gem Rommel, Australian Director of ICANN. And do check out the website. So much information on it. W. I-C-A-N-W dot org dot A-U. When the website opens, you'll see Take Action for the Hibakusha. And if you click the arrow in the bottom right-hand corner, it opens to a page with all the events. Tonight at 7 on Zoom, the 1953 film Hiroshima is being shown. And there's lots more, so do check it out. And I actually asked Jem what her take-home message was for all of us. And here's what she had to say.
2: If there's sort of a one big takeaway message, it's that this treaty is happening and it's working, and that is the standard that we have to hold Australia to.
1: And a big thank you to all our guests here on Listening Notes today Chris Conane from the University of Technology, Sydney, and Jem Rommel, Australian Director of ICANN. Thank you for tuning in to listening notes on 3CR I'm Judith Peppard, it's been terrific having you with us this afternoon and stay tuned because Diaspora Blues is coming up next and that's always fabulous don't miss it, see you next week and here's Fatumata Diawara with Torini. <laughs>
4: rajaana ale shmaason digima derini derining a bedisa ne yarabi mafe kañaloñi derini derining a bedisa nekanu.